You will recall that one of the pillars of King Richard's regime, John Howard, Duke of Norfolk, had been killed and the Royal Vanguard routed by John de Vere, Earl of Oxford. Some others of Richard's men on the field would have seen that happen and perhaps also took flight. Richard must have looked for his leading magnates to weigh in and support him. We've already established that the Stanleys, if they supported anyone directly, would support Henry. So the collapse of Richard's vanguard would hardly have persuaded the Stanleys to support the king. However, they did not yet join Henry. What does this tell us? It tells us that Richard had not yet lost the battle. The Stanleys would have been watching closely what Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland and commander of the king's rearguard, was doing. Well, they would not have seen much, because Northumberland was not doing anything. It is worth turning this situation on its head. Forget Richard and Henry for a moment and focus on Northumberland and Thomas Stanley, two political heavyweights of their age. Each had thousands of men under their command and their armies were not very far apart. At this pivotal moment in the battle, with the royal vanguard in pieces, either man could have ridden to support Richard, but neither did. As much as they were focused on the battle, they were also watching each other. If either committed to the fight, the other might join them, or, equally possible, might attack them from behind and destroy them. Neither was thinking about the battle. Both were thinking about what came next. Both men wanted greater influence over whoever was the victor at Bosworth, and that is why they played this game. We have examined Stanley's motives already, but what about Northumberland? Northumberland, like Thomas Stanley, had to consider what outcome was in his best interests. Certainly, if Henry became king without his help, Northumberland's position would be weaker than it was for he would not want Stanley to gain power at his expense. But remember that King Richard depended upon the support of the Nevilles, the traditional northern rivals of the Percys, and if Northumberland saw Richard's kingship as flawed, perhaps he had found another solution. And there is an interesting theory that Northumberland, wary of Richard's tarnished reputation as king, saw an opportunity to ensure that neither Richard nor Henry became king. In the north, Richard had his nephew, the Duke of Clarence's son, Edward Earl of Warwick, locked up, most likely at Sheriff Hutton Castle. The suggestion is that Northumberland had in mind the idea of putting Edward Earl of Warwick on the throne and marrying him to his own daughter. He, then, not Stanley, would be the kingmaker at Bosworth. If he ensured that everyone else destroyed themselves. Of course, there is no actual evidence of such a plot by Northumberland, but it would help to explain why he did nothing. There may, of course, be a simple and more practical reason why neither Northumberland nor Stanley intervened. To get to Henry, either of them would have to cross the marshy ground on Henry's right flank. Perhaps they simply could not do so, or regarded it as too much of a risk to attempt it. Whatever the reasons for their inactivity, it was, of course, vital to Richard. He would already have suspected that the Stanleys might leave him. 
that when he and his most loyal supporters saw that there was no help coming from Northumberland either, they must have been devastated. Much evidence suggests that at this point, several key men advised Richard to flee while he could. That is, live to fight another day, as they say. Now, Richard had personal experience of this because he had fled with his brother Edward when faced with overwhelming odds against him. In the end, it comes down to a mindset. Edward accepted that he might flee to regroup, but Richard had an entirely different mindset. He was determined to see the battle through. If he won, he was brave. If he lost, he was foolish. But Richard's decision to stay might have been a little more sensible than it appears in hindsight. We have already said that most of Henry's army was committed upon his left flank, and that he had few men with him in his position at the rear of his army. It seems that at this critical moment in the battle, Richard saw Henry's standard in the distance. Oxford's fight was away to the king's right, but straight ahead of him, his opponent Henry stood exposed with relatively little support. Richard saw a genuine, if risky, opportunity to strike down his enemy and end the battle. So, he led a mounted assault with his household knights, and riding around the ongoing struggle with Oxford, he charged directly at Henry's small force. Wearing his crown on his helmet, he was determined to live or die as king. Still, the Stanleys, despite Thomas's earlier promise to Henry, had not intervened. Richard made for Henry's standards, where he expected to find the king. Well, he did, but Henry was well defended by his leading knights. Sir William Brandon, his standard bearer, was killed, and one of the greatest, indeed largest, knights of his day, John Cheney, was knocked down. There was a very real threat to Henry's life. But it is impossible now to distinguish fact from fiction in the final sequence of events. It was in the interest of Tudor chroniclers to big up Henry's role, to accentuate his resistance and bravery. To do that, it was also necessary to exaggerate the threat. But how close did Richard get to killing his opponent? We've no idea, but it is reasonable to suppose that those he did kill would have been very close to Henry indeed. The conclusion must be that Richard's brave gambit came close to success. It did fail, but it failed not through any particular heroism on Henry's part or any weakness of Richard. It failed because, finally, the Stanleys intervened. It was Sir William Stanley who launched an attack with his 3,000 men and destroyed both Richard and his men. They arrived in the nick of time, but that could not possibly have been deliberate. Indeed, it's quite possible that Henry could have been killed before they arrived. William Stanley had no way of knowing what the exact situation was. But did the Stanleys only act then because Henry was in peril? What is certain is that it is very unlikely that William Stanley would have acted without his elder brother's permission. It's possible that Thomas Stanley received word of his son's escape and decided he could act freely. Equally possible, he might have accepted that his son was dead and he might as well intervene. After the event, of course, it became a perfectly timed intervention. 
but the Stanleys basically got lucky. Throughout the battle, they had waited and waited, and only when Henry's death seemed imminent did they move. And even then, Thomas Stanley himself remained aloof on higher ground, still perhaps nervous about Northumberland's nearby and superior force. It appears likely that Richard and any survivors were driven into the marsh by William Stanley's sudden attack, and there they were cut down. After the battle, a lot of men claimed they had delivered the blow that killed the king. A favourite choice was the Welshman Resap Thomas. But even at the time, hardly anyone would actually have known who killed Richard. Meanwhile, Northumberland withdrew a little from the field. Did he know Richard was actually dead? Almost certainly not, but he would have realised that from the moment William Stanley intervened, Richard was doomed. By then, there was not much he could have done to save him, so sensibly he withdrew. Meanwhile, many others surrendered, and the king's crown was discovered and ended up in the hands of the Stanley brothers. The chronicles argue as to which brother placed the crown upon Henry's head, but most likely it was Thomas Stanley, who by his absence from the battle had given Henry victory. The battle had not lasted very long, perhaps a couple of hours. The death toll was certainly not as great as at Towton, or even battles such as Barnet or even Tewkesbury. Far more were killed on the king's side, most when the vanguard was routed. Perhaps a hundred of Henry's men were killed to a thousand of Richard's. This was one of those strange battles where those who looked on outnumbered those who actually fought. The death of Richard, of course, was all that mattered. Though intriguingly, it was also possible that in the final melee, both men could have been killed, leaving Northumberland with the genuine possibility of putting Edward Earl of Warwick on the throne. Richard's body, once discovered, was stripped and put on public display at Leicester. This was only partly done to humiliate his memory. It was also to scotch any rumours that he had escaped the field. Two of Richard's most committed supporters, Richard Ratcliffe and Robert Brackenbury, were killed in the melee with their lord. Some other notables managed to escape, including Francis, Lord Lovell, and John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, Richard's nephew and named successor. Since many others had surrendered, there was a long list of prisoners, most notably Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, John Howard's son, the Earl of Surrey, and a leading counsellor of the king, Sir William Catesby. Surrey was eventually pardoned, and Northumberland too, but not until Henry had secured possession of Edward Earl of Warwick and kept Northumberland in the tower for a few months. Sir William Catesby, however, was not as fortunate. His influence with Richard and his very prominent role both in the seizure of power of 1483 and subsequent reign meant that he had to be executed, and on the 25th of August he was. In the aftermath of Henry's victory, many stories flew around of desertions from Richard's army. After all, if you could claim that you refused to fight for the king, then Henry might not punish you too much. It's the usual PR, really. Everyone helped in the victory, no one wanted to fight for Richard, and they only turned up because they were forced to. And, of course, they all thanked God for Henry's victory. As I've already said, this is not about loyalty or courage. It's about preservation of one's family's long-term interests. Most other prominent men 
were not hounded by Henry, who attempted to unite the nobility behind him. So what was the significance of Bosworth? Well, if on the 23rd of August, the day after Bosworth, you asked a nobleman, or for that matter, a noble lady, whether the battle was important, they might have replied, I'll let you know in 10 years time. Because folk of the late 15th century had become a little wary of so-called decisive battles. Wakefield in 1460, St Albans and Towton, in 1461, Barnet and Tewkesbury in 1471. All had seemed decisive in one way or another. Yet none of these battles ended the period of crisis. So why should Bosworth be any different? Now, newcomers to these podcasts might say at this point, but Richard III was dead, so surely that was the end of it. But of course, regular listeners will know that there were always others who were keen to press their claim to the throne.